Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program slash podcast. I don't know, maybe there's some other ways we're getting this out there. Uh, Perhaps uh, someone has taken the time to type up a transcript. Maybe convert it into Braille. I don't know. But uh, however you're enjoying the program, thanks for being a part of it. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com joins me this morning. Eric, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back on, Brian. And by the way, I always post our uh, our talks on my website. So that's uh, another means by which people can listen to us chat. Excellent. Actually, you know, and I, I notice uh, I notice a nice little bump in the number of podcast downloads every time you do that. So thank you for, for what you're doing to help get the word out there. And, and thanks again for taking some time to, to sit down with me each week. Um, for those who don't know, and Eric, I'm, I'm going to assume that there are probably some people joining us who may not be familiar with you. Um, I could describe you as an automotive writer and uh, advocate for freedom and liberty and proper government, but I'm probably missing a few of, of the high points. How else would you describe yourself to folks meeting you for the first time? Well, it's kind of funny. I, I, I morphed from being a guy who, who wrote about cars uh, to writing about libertarian politics uh, and cars um, because I kind of got forced to. Uh, you know, there there is a concerted effort to limit people's mobility, uh, to stifle car ownership, and to sever the bonds, the emotional connections that generations of Americans have had with their cars and with driving. So I naturally began to write about these things, and so I probably do. Uh, an equal equal fifty fifty share of doing things like car reviews and consumer oriented articles along with articles that talk about these issues about cars about mobility um, and about where those things are headed well, one of the things i 've noticed is you have a unique gift for being able to cut through the normalcy bias that most of us live with. I mean we look at the world around us and we may feel like ah, this doesn 't feel quite right, but uh, because it's the norm, because that's the frame of reference most of us operate within and nobody else seems to be complaining too loud, we tend to just accept it, shrug our shoulders and go on. You have a knack for spelling out, hey, this is where we're drifting off course, mm-hmm. and here's what we would need to do to, to bring it back on course. Well, it's actually a pretty easy trick. Uh, as a writer, uh, I'm very interested in words and with being precise about words and what words mean. And if you read a sentence and you notice a particular word in there that's being used in a certain way and you deconstruct it a little bit, uh, you go, aha, they're really trying to talk about something else without, without actually talking about it. I'll give you a good example. You'll hear politicians talk about uh, people contributing to Social Security. They always use that word, or contributing their fair share. What they really mean is taxes. You know, a contribution is something that you do voluntarily. It's not something that you do when you have a bayonet in your back. Um, <laughs> Right? Oh, yeah. So, you know, apply that principle generally. Whenever you read something, carefully look at the words and the verbiage and, and contrast that with what's clearly what, what they're attempting to tell you and see if there is a disconnect there between uh, the intention and, and the word. Well, I think you probably more than any other writer have opened my eyes to, to the danger of people who talk in terms of we or society. Yes. You know, that collective mm-hmm. language that, that supposedly means, well, everybody else is doing this. I guess I guess I should shut up and fall in line. Yeah, it's this idea, you know, this, this presumed consent. Uh, as kids, uh, we were taught about the consent of the governed. You heard that language uh, when you learned about the Revolutionary War and the colonial era. 
but to a great degree, uh, we're never actually asked our consent. It's just taken for granted. And then we're compelled to uh, to do things or not do things because supposedly we've given our consent. Well, I don't know about you, but nobody ever presented me with a contract and gave me the opportunity to say yay or nay. Uh, they just simply shoved a bayonet in my back and told me what I'm going to do. Or they may try to be a little bit uh, sophistic and say, well, now, Eric, because you live in America, you are hereby giving your consent. It's implied consent that, sure. that we can we can uh, take from you what we need to take, in, like in terms of taxes and so forth. Right. But again, that's not consent. If words have meaning, that is not consent. In a, in a court, uh, if you were uh, engaged in business, consent uh, is a very, very precise term that means you formally agreed to do something. Uh, you can't go into a court with a contract that, that wasn't signed by somebody and, 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 and tell the judge, well, uh, he gave me his implied consent. There's no signature on this thing, but I have his implied consent. They'll throw you out of the court. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate everything you do to open our eyes. Uh, I noticed you have a great article published this morning on LewRockwell.com um, about the hidden costs yep. that cost a lot. And, and this is going to sting mm-hmm. for some people when they realize, hey, wait a minute. I never even thought of it this way. Talk to me about the hidden costs, particularly as it uh, mm-hmm. applies to, to maybe one of our most cherished pieces of private property, our automobiles. Sure. Well, it's like real estate. Uh, you keep on paying uh, on your car long after you paid for it. There are a variety of taxes. Uh, for example, the, the registration fee. Now, it's called registration fee. Here we go again with the words, but it's really just a tax that you're required to pay every year. And then there are things like property taxes in my state, Virginia that are applied every year. And these things cumulatively amount to a lot of money. I I was just considering how much I paid recently on my old truck. I've got a 2002 Nissan Frontier, and it's worth maybe 4,000 bucks. Well, over the course of about the last 15 years, I've paid close to $800 in registration fees on this truck, plus uh, at least another $1,000 in property taxes. So in effect, I'm paid about 50% of the current market value of my truck in just those two taxes. Well, and as you point out in your article, people may look at the, the amount, you know, what is it, roughly 60 bucks a year and say, ah, that's not much. Yeah. But, right. but add, it adds up over time. It adds up over time, and the, the, the really noxious part of it is that it never ends. So uh, you never truly own your vehicle. You can never say that you truly own something if, as a condition of being allowed to possess it, you must continually pay somebody for it. Such a person is a renter, not an owner. And that's what we are with both our cars uh, and with real estate. And I think that these peripheral costs that are applied to both of them uh, are making them unaffordable. And, I, and to tie it back into the, the article, uh, there has been a, a significant down, uh, downturn in new car sales for six months running now. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that cars are not only getting more expensive to buy, they're getting more expensive to keep because of all of these peripheral uh, taxes and costs that are piled on top of the cost of the car itself. Well, and, and municipal governments are getting more aggressive in how they go after those those taxes in the forms of registration fees. Case in point, mm-hmm. I used to live in St. George, Utah, which has some of the strictest code enforcement that you're going to find anywhere. Now, mm-hmm. they actually asserted under, I, I think they, they passed this under a state of emergency for some reason, that uh, their nuisance laws would include going after people who have what they call an unregistered vehicle on their property. Ah, Mm -hmm. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it's in your garage under a tarp, still under construction. If it's not registered, you can't have it on your property. Yeah. They did the same thing uh, in the county where I used to live in Virginia, which is um, Fairfax County. 
Uh, same thing. You know, they, they enacted these nuisance laws, uh, allegedly because there were unsightly old cars with out-of-date tags and registrations sitting in people's backyards. But even if, as you say, uh, you had a car that was, for whatever reason, it's out of service, it needs a new engine, you're working on it, whatever, but it's in your garage, nobody can see it, they still went after you for that reason. So clearly it had nothing to do with uh, the vehicle being unsightly. It just has to do with they want your money. Well, and, and I'll add to that one other little trick that uh, has popped up in recent years, and that being license plate readers, in which an officer yes. can sit there in the police car, thousands of yep. cars driving by, and that scanner yep. will pick up the license plate of, okay, well, this person isn't, uh, mm-hmm. their registration is lapsed, and guess who gets a little roadside chat with, with someone who's yep. there to collect some revenue? Yeah, those things are called ALPRs, A-L-P-R, Automated License Plate Readers. And if you ever see a police car on the side of the road with what looks like four little boxes, one on each corner of the vehicle, just sitting there, that's what he's doing. They're data mining all the cars that are passing by for not just registration, for everything, uh, including things like whether you're up to date on your insurance, whether your state safety inspection is valid, et cetera, and so on. And all of this stuff is recorded and kept somewhere. So uh, it's a huge privacy issue. You know, leaving aside all the pedantic little laws, uh, it's alarming to me that you've got these, these vehicles out there that are, are just constantly monitoring us. It's exactly like Big Brother uh, in George Orwell, except it's reality and not fiction. Well, and as you point out in your article, the, the really ugly part of this is the state knows your vehicle is a key part of your mobility, which, which it, for most people is going to be a key part of their being able to live a productive life. You have to pay if you want to possess your vehicle, and the state now knows that uh, they've, they've got you where they want you. That's right. That's right. And, and in some cases, these fees are absolutely exorbitant. Now, my truck is almost 20 years old. It has a book value of about 4000 bucks, and I'm still paying 100 bucks a year. If I had a new vehicle, if I had a $35,000 truck in my state, uh, I would probably be paying at least 800 to to $1,000 a year in property taxes for the next 8 to 10 years, if you can imagine that. Amazing. And, and I love how you connected the dot here. This is the four-wheeled variant of the Marxist principle of applying perpetual yes. taxes to capital in order to prevent the accumulation thereof. I've never heard yeah, it put you know, that way, but it rings exactly true. Well, it is. It's, it's right there in, in uh, the Communist Manifesto, if you'd like to read it, which the purpose of all of this is to, uh, is to essentially prevent people from ever truly owning anything. Because if you own things, you have less and less need of the government, and the government has less and less control over you. Okay, hold Imagine that thought, that, hold that thought Eric. i got to jump in here. We're coming up on our break. Oh, sure. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is with me this morning. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. We have a little conversation uh, about every week, and I, I feel like I'm better for it. So, Eric, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me and with my listeners. Um, before, we, before we go further, I, I want to take a moment here to, to ask you to, to shamelessly pimp your website and talk about some of the people who help or some of the sponsors who help make it possible for you to do what you do. Well, I'm, I'll only pimp myself out to the degree that I encourage people to visit the site if they're interested not only in, in politics and philosophical issues, but if they're interested in information about cars, new cars, old cars, car maintenance, 
Uh, I offer my services uh, gratis. People can uh, click a button to ask me a question. I don't charge for that. And if they like what they see, I, you know, I'd be happy to accept donations. The site is supported entirely um, by, uh, by, readers, uh, by readers directly uh, in that way. And we also have a few uh, dedicated advertisers, including uh, Valentine One radar detectors, which I thoroughly recommend to anybody who drives uh, at all. Don't leave home without it, like your American <laughs> Express card. Also, Amsoil. It's another one of our sponsors, and I use Amsoil in all my personal vehicles. The stuff is top-notch. Uh, if you love your vehicles, uh, I strongly urge uh, that you look into Amsoil. Well, and I want to just emphasize to, to our listeners here, voices like Eric's sometimes have a very difficult time staying platformed when you you know when you have a platform and you are you're doing this as as a means of uh, this this is your vocation this is your livelihood um there there are forces out there and mainly the big tech you know google and youtube and so forth they're doing their very best to make sure that voices like yours are harder to find and and are are being marginalized and pushed you know to the side so let's let's do what we can to to make sure that uh, people like Eric can continue to be heard, because, uh, frankly, you got a message that's, that's really worth hearing. Thank you, Brian. That's very kind of you. Let's come back here to the idea of uh, taxes on our vehicles. You were yeah. mentioning as we went to break, one of the reasons why we, we have these, these registration fees, which go on in perpetuity. I mean, your vehicle can be a, you know, a, a car-shaped pile of rust sitting in your driveway, but hey, as long as it's there, the government still wants you to keep on paying for the privilege of owning it. And you mentioned this yes. is because people who own things, truly own things, don't have as much need for government, and therefore government has less leverage over people who, who, uh, who own their own property. Sure. If you think about it, financial independence is the ultimate form of independence. Uh, if you actually owned your home, you know, after you've paid it off to the to the mortgage company, and you no longer have to send money to anybody to live in your house, you have a freehold. You have a house. You have a vehicle. It's yours. No one else has any claim to it whatsoever. Uh, in that case, you can live on remarkably little money. You don't have to constantly be the little hamster in the wheel generating money in order to pay the government, which is really what it comes down to. Um, most people could lead a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle on about 25000 bucks a year uh, if they weren't taxed so obnoxiously by the government at all levels. Uh, not only are we taxed on things like vehicles and property, but we're taxed on our money when we earn it. Uh, you have to earn essentially $50,000 to have $25,000 in spending money. That's how bad it's gotten. And it's worth considering as we approach the fourth, which, after all, was supposedly fought because people were tired of oppressive taxation. And here we are. No, no doubt. Um, let's let's talk for a moment about uh, where where did this idea that we can tax property, you know, in, in perpetuity come from? I've asked, for instance, county auditors and assessors, where mm-hmm. where did this come from? I can't ever get a straight answer. They, they always give me some variation. Of, well, it's just always been this way. But I don't mm-hmm. think that's the truth. You mentioned freehold. And I know there was once a thing called yeah. a lodial freehold. A lodial title. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that was the norm in the country until uh, roughly the 1850s, 1860s. You had a great influx of these progressive people who became progressives, the the antecedents of what today we call progressives from Europe, who began to infiltrate uh, the government at all levels. And of course, the the so-called Civil War greatly accelerated that and put more of these people in positions of power. 
And uh, that is when the juggernaut really began, and they began to uh, impose taxes on people simply for uh, being allowed to uh, to temporarily and conditionally use what was formerly their property. Now, my understanding is that in a few areas, for example, I think in Texas, uh, there are still some allodial title properties uh, which can be conveyed, uh, but they're extraordinarily rare. Most people, you know, all of us essentially are renters. Uh, we're, we are uh, we are on the uncle's land, government's land, and we're permitted to occupy it for as long as we continue to pay rent to the government. Man, when you put it that way, <laughs> it just puts it into such stark it's reality. True. You know, well, it's a brutal thing. You know, you remember the Matrix movie, the original one, the red pill and the blue pill? Right. Well, it's exactly that. And once you come to think of it, once you really become conscious of it, you can never go back. You become aware. Uh, you know, I'm sure, uh, it's just speaking for myself, and you're probably the same way, there was a time when I never really thought about it much, and I always thought, well, I'm the owner of my car, I'm the owner of my property, but I've been disabused of that notion. You know, I get disabused of it every year when I get that letter in the mail telling me how much I owe for things I didn't, I didn't contract for, but if I don't pay, uh, armed men will come and remove me from what I thought was my house and take it from me. I'm pretty sure that you were the guy who introduced me to the concept of the squeegee man and likened government yeah. to being a, a violent squeegee man. Would you would you share that <laughs> right. analogy with our listeners? Yeah. Oh, it's this. It, you know, people who who haven't lived in a big city probably don't know about this. But you pull up to a, a traffic light, or you're stuck in traffic in New York City, and a guy will approach your car with a dirty rag and a bucket. Uh, and he'll start uh, rubbing down your windshield for you, which, of course, you didn't ask for. And if you don't give him money, the implied threat is that he's going to do something to your vehicle or to you. But uh, he's giving you a service, you see. You know, he's cleaning your windshield for you. So it's not really uh, an act of theft or, uh, or extortion because you're getting something in return for, you know, for the money that you've just been effectively forced to hand over to this guy. But government kind of does the same thing. It brings you services you don't necessarily want, and then it demands payment or else yeah. if you don't, uh, you know, cough up the dough. Well, it doesn't kind of. It does. You know, all the money that I'm, most of the money that is, t- is taken from me from property taxes, for example, uh, goes to fund, quote unquote, the schools, that is government schools. I don't have any children, and I've never really understood how it becomes my, an obligation uh, my obligation, one that's enforceable at gunpoint, to provide for the schooling of other people's children. I don't understand that. I'm not saying I, I hate kids. You get accused of that. I just don't understand why somebody else's children are my obligation. I feel that people who have children choose to have them, and it's their obligation, first and foremost, to care for them, and that includes providing for their education. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, we're, we're coming up on um, Independence Day, and I, I think you have one of the more poignant takes on uh, we, we, we go through the motions, we do a lot of celebrating, yeah. but few people actually stop to think about what does that independence mean and, and what, to, what should we be celebrating as opposed to just going through the motions? Right, right, exactly. Ask yourself, what does freedom mean? Uh, we're free uh, to say, are we free to say no, I think is probably the most concise way to understand our predicament. And the answer to that is no, we're not. Uh, government is like a mafia that makes you an offer you can't refuse. If you say no, you're punished. Even if you're simply a peaceful person, you're minding your own business, uh, you haven't harmed anybody, you're not imposing any costs on anybody. Nonetheless, these people, a.k.a. the government, 
will come to you, either in person or through the mails or by some other means, and claim you owe them money, uh, require you to do things or not do things, including, for example, uh, if I want to put up a shed in, quote-unquote, my backyard, I have to go to these people, the government, and ask permission to put up a shed on my own property that I paid for. How free are we, really? And We're you not have very to, free, are we? And you have to cough up a little tribute as well, another fee. Of course. <laughs> of course. And these people are free, they are free, to send agents to come walking around my property to look at my property to decide how much I owe them to be able to, to continue to stay in my property. It's crazy. Eric, we're down to about 30 seconds here, but any suggestions yeah. on how a person could have a meaningful Independence Day? Well, yeah, I think it's a, a it, rather than, than just get drunk and watch something on TV or hang out with your friends and eat food, which is great. I do. I do those things, too. It might be good to really stop and reflect about what it means to be free and ask yourself whether are we free? And if we're not, uh, why aren't we? And what can we do about that uh, as individuals, as families, as members of the community? Amen, bro. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. So great to visit with you, my friend. Let's talk again next week. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is my number if you'd like to chime in. I, I walk a fine line sometimes, and this is one of those times where I'm going to ease out onto the tightrope. Because, uh, I look, my, my goal in the information that I share with you, the guests that I interview, always, always is to, to leave you at the end of the discussion more certain of what you stand for, whether you agree with me or my guest or not, than simply what or who you are against. So when I bring up things like I'm about to bring up, I, I just want to make clear my, my goal here is not to, to stir your righteous anger and to, to, you know, give you some demon to wrestle. I know there are people who actually thrive on that. There are people who are enemy driven and fear driven and they, they really love it. And I've actually seen firsthand you can build a very large and loyal audience in talk radio by giving people enemies to contend with. That is not my goal here, but but I feel like I, I have to say something after witnessing some of the things that I've seen come up over uh, the news media and over social media over the weekend. I guess there there were a couple of uh, protests slash demonstrations in, in Portland, Oregon over the weekend. And the, the masked activists who call themselves Antifa seem to get a pass from the press when they are engaged in violent an aggressive behavior when they're out there actually beating people and uh, and essentially, you know, becoming a, a lynch mob. The press likes to, to give them the benefit of the doubt. Case in point. And I, I, I'm not saying the gentleman's name right. Andy Nigo. He, he's Vietnamese. He's a reporter. For what it's worth, I'm going to mention this just because not only is he a minority, but he's also a homosexual as well. You would think he would get a pass from the social justice warrior mindset that seems to dominate the uh, anti, so-called anti-fascists who call themselves Antifa. But because he was out there peacefully documenting what these masked uh, social justice warriors were out there trying to do, he was attacked, beaten, 
hit with uh, with cups of they they said it would they were throwing milkshakes but apparently uh, there's some question now Portland police have, have released a statement saying uh, the the cups actually may have been filled with uh, quick crete which you know concrete it's fast setting I don't know if it was fully set up so it was like a brick but at the very least it's caustic can irritate or damage the skin or the eyes but the bottom line is the guy is out there peacefully taking pictures and documenting what's going on, but he doesn't march in lockstep with Antifa. And the video is, is as plain as could be. They beat the crap out of him. They sent him to the hospital. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I can't remember which reporter it was. I think it was for the Oregonian um, uh, a reporter says, well, here was the first skirmish that I saw today. A skirmish? Really? Somebody getting the crap beat out of them? That's a skirmish. Okay. In the minds of the uh, oh so fair, let's give the benefit of the doubt to everybody press. I didn't see what started things, but this one reporter was beaten and sent to the hospital. Let me just flip this around for a minute. If it had been the Proud Boys beating the tar out of an Antifa member... Would, would the reporter have been so magnanimous? Would, would the reporter have, you know, well, you know, I didn't see how this started. You know, maybe maybe the Antifa guy threw a, you know, urine filled balloon or something like that at, at one of the Proud Boys or took a swing at him. And then the, the beating commenced. And by the way, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, beating on anybody is, is the best way to do things. This is this is violence in the streets. The really disturbing thing to me, though, is there are allegations that Portland police stood by and tolerated the violence. I mean, here they are all decked out in their riot gear. They're ready for crowd control. (sighs) But they don't stop Antifa from going out there and and beating on people. And by the way, there there have been other videos from other times where Antifa will sit there and block a street. And, And it's not just a matter of, hey, we're just peacefully blocking the street and, you know, trying to bring awareness to our message. They are openly taunting, trying to provoke people. I mean, cursing at them in the worst possible ways, daring them to do something, anything. And the camera pans over and shows here's a group of cops just standing down the street, watching, observing. There are actually some crude ways that I'd like to to describe how they're standing there watching, but I won't. But it's 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 maddening. So you have Antifa members viciously attacking Andy Nago on Saturday at a Portland rally. A couple of elderly guys were beaten, one of them with a crowbar. Some pretty interesting and graphic pictures of him having to have his scalp stapled back together. And now there are accusations that uh, the police may have actually, or the city of Portland, may have violated the First Amendment by telling the police to just stand by and let that violence commence. Now, ostensibly, Antifa is there. We're trying to stop fascism. We're trying to protect people. They will claim, even as they're beating someone with a sign that says, stop the hate, we're just acting in self-defense. And they have plenty of sympathizers. They have plenty of enablers within the legacy media. Apparently only Nazis, which, by the way, is anybody who does not agree with Antifa, you know, would, would dare speak out against them. But I want to share with you some thoughts here from an article by Anthony Mueller. This was published on fee.org. This was back in March of 2018. The demands of Antifa and the original fascists have a lot in common. 
He points out, now keep in mind, this is over a year ago. A ghastly phenomenon has descended upon America, and that's the specter of anti-capitalism. Young people march behind the socialist bandwagon. Some activists block free speech as members of a group called Antifa, which stands for anti-fascist. And he says this anti-fascist movement engages in militant protest. It does not shrink from using violence as a part of the extreme left. Members of the Antifa movement are self-proclaimed anti-capitalist and declared enemies of the right. They call themselves anti-fascist when, in fact, more than any other ideology, fascism characterizes their own movement. So I want to share with you just a few thoughts about what is the content of this ideology and what is fascism. And then let's line that up and see whose actions best match up with that description. In this case, uh, Anthony Mueller points out that the fascist manifesto was proclaimed back in 1919 by Alceste de Ambris and, Fil- and Filippo Tommaso Marionetti. In their pamphlet, the authors called for an eight-hour work- eight workday rather, and a minimum wage. They demanded worker representation in industrial management, equal standing of trade unions, industrial executives, and public servants. The authors of the Fascist Manifesto demanded progressive taxation, invalidity insurance, and other types of social benefits along with reducing the retirement age. The fascist manifesto demanded the confiscation of the property of all religious institutions and to nationalize the armament industry. The authors of the fascist manifesto called for establishing a corporatist system of national councils formed by experts to be elected by their professional organizations who should hold legislative power in their respective areas. D'Ambrose and Marionetti demanded a strong progressive tax on capital to expropriate a portion of all wealth and the seizure of all the possessions of the religious congregations together with the nationalization of the arms industry. And in 1922, the socialist Benito, Benito Mussolini rather, came to power in Italy under the banner of fascism and put most of the fascist program into practice, as it was proclaimed in the manifesto some years earlier. So let's compare that with the Communist Manifesto written by Marx and Engels, published back in 1848. Tell me if you don't see some kinship here between fascism and communism. The Communist Manifesto of 170 years ago demanded strongly progressive taxes, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly, centralization of the transport system in the hands of the state, Unification of the farmlands of agriculture and industry with the aim of gradually eliminating the contrast between town and country and public free education for all children, elimination of factory work of children in its present form, union of education with material production. According to the communist Decalogue, the items left to achieve full-blown socialism were expropriation of the landed property and use of basic rent for state expenditure, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels and equal obligation to work for all establishment of an industrial army, including in agriculture. Now, both the communist and fascist manifestos were echoed in the official party program of the Nazis, which was launched in 1920. By the way, Adolf Hitler was present when the 25 points of the program of the Nazi party were announced on February 24, 1920. The name Nazism itself says it all. It's the abbreviation of NSDAP, which stands for National Socialiste Socialist Deutsche Arbeiter Partei. I'm saying it horribly wrong, but 
Essentially, what it's talking about is the National Socialist German Workers Party. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. And again, my my idea here is I don't want to I'm not trying to stoke your hate, but I want to stoke your understanding of what these so-called anti-fascists actually stand for and what their actions are showing them to actually be about. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Talking about Antifa. Yes, the group that goes out there masked, ready, willing, and able to commit violence against anybody who isn't uh, likewise suited up as they are or marching in unison with them. Ostensibly, they are there to stop fascists. Yes, neo-Nazis from going out there and victimizing innocent people. How do they do it? Well, they kind of go out there and victimize innocent people. <laughs> it's, it's really quite remarkable. I'm telling you this because, frankly, it seems like there's a disconnect in how the media covers Antifa. Even with very blatant evidence that uh, that these groups are going out there and acting like uh, uh, Weimar uh, Germany era thugs. If you know your history, you'll know that uh, there, there were lots of street gangs, the brown shirts and others brawling in the streets in the, the closing days of the Weimar Republic. Folks, we have some parallels going on right now in our society. It does not bode well for us. But you first have to understand, what do these folks allegedly stand for? And what, what do they say that they're against? Well, they are against capitalism. Okay, gotcha. They are against anybody on the right. Okay, they are against Nazis. Okay, hold the line. Let's talk about what the Nazi Party program actually stood for. And then let's see how it lines up with what Antifa stands for. Shall we? Again, this is an article on fee.org. This is from March of 2018. Anthony Mueller is the author. But listen to the demands of the Nazi party. Back in 1925, the General Assembly of the NDSDAP, which is the, the Nazi party, declared their program of 1920 as immutable, and in 1941, Adolf Hitler determined that all future leaders of the Reich must be sworn in on the 25 points. Now, that program included demands such as this. Socialization of monopoly companies. Municipalization of large department stores. Expropriation of land for charitable purposes. Prevention of real estate speculation. Expansion of the entire education system. A comprehensive system of free public schools and generous study stipends and grants. A clean environment, along with promoting the health and the fitness of the people. In particular, the Nazi Party program demanded abolition of easy income without work, confiscation of war profits, the nationalization of all trust enterprises, profit sharing in large companies, generous expansion of retirement provision, the creation of a healthy middle class, and a land reform adapted to national needs, creating a law for the free appropriation of land for charitable purposes, abolition of, abolition of, land, for, of land consumption, and prevention of any land speculation. In Plank 20, the party program required that the state must ensure that our national education system gets thoroughly expanded with an ample system of subsidies for education. In Plank 21... The program demanded that the state has the duty to help raise the standard of national health 
by providing maternity welfare centers, by prohibiting juvenile labor, by increasing physical fitness through the introduction of compulsory games and gymnastics, and by the greatest possible encouragement of the associations concerned with the physical education of the young. The Nazis also called for a creation of a people's army. Where have you heard that before? Not so different from what the communists in Eastern Europe and Asia later promoted. This selection of demands from communist, fascist, and Nazi catalogs shows a very high degree of similarity between the lines of thought of these three ideologies. Not surprising, right? I mean, come on, they're all totalitarian in their approach. What the communists express in the slogan, from each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs, is equal to the Nazi dictum that the common sense, or the common good rather, comes before the private good. And the fascist motto of all within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. So it comes as no surprise that the communist, fascist, and national socialist governments have acted as repressive regimes that brought neither prosperity nor equality or peace, but misery, suppression, and war. After the left has pocketed the concept of liberalism and turned the word into the opposite of its original meaning, the Antifa movement uses a false terminology to hide its true agenda, while calling themselves anti-fascist and declaring fascism as the enemy. Antifa itself is a foremost fascist movement. Anthony Mueller points out the members of Antifa are not opponents to fascism, but themselves its genuine representatives. Communism, socialism, fascism are united by the common band of anti-capitalism and anti-liberalism. The Antifa movement is a fascist movement. The enemy of this movement is not fascism, but liberty, peace, and prosperity. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes, but I think this is worth knowing and understanding. And this is not a call to go out there and, you know, armor up and go fight them in the streets. I don't think that solves anything. But you've got to be able to see them for what they are. And they are not victims. Now, I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush when I say this, but anybody who has to do something that requires them to hide their identity, to mask their face before they're doing it, if it can't stand in the light of day, if you have to, if you have to sneak in order to do it, maybe Grandma was right when she said maybe you shouldn't be doing that in the first place. Just a thought. All right, another, another thought here before we finish up the hour. Um, I, I posted a, a chart on Facebook a couple of days ago showing what happened to the national debt once we went off the gold standard. And it's very telling. You want to talk about this incredible exponential growth in debt. And I posted it with the idea that the, the thing that's remarkable is with all the you know, Democratic hopefuls and even, you know, even you know, President Trump, who announced his reelection bid here a week or so ago, nobody talks about this. Ron Paul actually has an article published today on LewRockwell.com. Media and politicians ignore oncoming financial crisis. Here's what he says. He says the mainstream media was too busy obsessing over Russiagate to notice that according to an annual Social Security and Medicare Board of Trustees report, the Social Security Trust Fund will run out of money by 2035. The trustees also reported that the Medicare Hospital Insurance Trust Fund will be empty by 2027. 
Now, the trustee's report is actually optimistic. Social Security is completely funded. Medicare is largely funded by payroll taxes. Therefore, their revenue fluctuates depending on the employment rate. So when unemployment inevitably increases, payroll tax revenue will decline, hastening Medicare and Social Security's bankruptcy. But he says another dark cloud on the government's fiscal horizon involves the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, or PBGC, which provides federal bailouts to bankrupt pension plans. The PBGC currently has an over $50 billion deficit, and this deficit will almost certainly increase as a large number of pension funds are likely to need a bailout in the next few years. Congress will likely bail out the PBGC to avoid facing the wrath of voters angry that Congress didn't save their pensions. Unfunded liabilities like Social Security and Medicare are not included in the official federal deficit. Congress raids the Social Security Trust Fund to increase spending and hide the deficit's true size, while leaving the trust fund with worthless IOUs. The media also ignored last week's Congressional Budget Office report, predicting the federal debt will increase to an unsustainable 144% of the gross domestic product by 2049. Now, the CBO's report is optimistic as it assumes interest rates remain low. Congress refrains from creating new programs and there are no major recessions. But few in Congress or the Trump administration are even talking about the coming fiscal tsunami, much less proposing the type of spending cuts necessary to pay down the debt and have the funds to unwind the entitlement programs without harming those currently reliant on them. Instead, both parties support increasing spending and debt. Ron Paul says Republican control of both houses of Congress and the White House led to increased federal spending of over $300 billion. The House Democratic majority now wants even more spending increases. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is threatening not to raise the debt ceiling unless President Trump and congressional Republicans agree to lift the spending caps put in place by the 2011 budget deal. Ron Paul says the Republican Congress routinely exceeded the cap's minuscule spending limits. Therefore, Speaker Pelosi should have no problem getting President Trump and his Republican congressional allies to once again exceed the caps on welfare spending as long as Democrats agree, as they are likely to agree to bust the caps on warfare spending. America's military budget already equals the combined budgets of the next seven highest spending countries. Instead of allowing himself to be neoconned into wasting trillions on another Middle East quagmire, President Trump should bring home the nearly 170,000 troops stationed in 150 countries. Unless Congress immediately begins making substantial spending cuts, Ron Paul says America will soon face a major economic crisis. And this crisis will likely involve the Federal Reserve's debt monetization, resulting in a rejection of the dollar's world reserve currency status. Since the media and most politicians refuse to discuss this topic, he says it's up to those of us who understand the truth to spread the word, grow the liberty movement, and force politicians to make real cuts right now. I don't know about the likelihood of it happening, but I do agree. That is the right thing to do. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 